I wanted to mention this message that I came up with here for this Easter to celebrate the resurrection is a message that I've often thought, what would I share with unbelievers who perhaps you invited here today? What would I want to share with them? I had 50 minutes to say, here's the case for Christ. This is what I'd like to share. And so today I want to give the reason why it is rational to believe in Jesus Christ. And I know as I say that some maybe that are here that are brought by a relative or perhaps you're watching on YouTube, perhaps you will remain unconvinced and skeptical. But I have to assure you the Bible is clear. The ultimate reason why people don't believe in Jesus Christ is not because of a lack of evidence where we have a lot of that. We're going to see just some of it today. But the real reason is, as Jesus said in John 3.19, because we love our deeds of darkness. We don't want to change our lives and turn from the sin that we love. That's the ultimate reason why people won't believe. But today, I want to give you evidence as to why the Bible should be believed and why Jesus Christ alone is the only Savior. So let me share the agenda that I have for you here this morning. Number one, we're going to prove that God must exist. And as I do so, I'm going to be giving you deductive arguments The power of deductive reasoning is that if I give you premises that are true and my argument is in valid form, the conclusions are necessarily true. In inductive reasoning, they will yield to probable conclusions, but deductive reasoning yields necessary conclusions. And I will prove to you that it is necessary that an eternal creator exists. Number two, We're going to prove to you that the Bible is true by history and predictive prophecy. I'm going to show you that secular historians who were not believers in Jesus Christ corroborate key elements of the gospel message and that predictive prophecy that's unique to the Bible proves that there's a God in heaven who knows the future and that the Bible is his self-disclosure to the world. We're going to prove that to you. Number three, Jesus is the only way to salvation proven by his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves all of his claims. Because he was bodily raised from the dead, we can know that he made atonement for us, that he alone is Lord and Savior, and that one day those who believe in him will also overcome the grave. Now, one thing I want to mention before I leave you this slide is I want you to understand that the reason for this is that none of us would be the fool, as David referred to in Psalm 14. I don't want anyone here walking out the fool. David said a thousand years prior to the birth of Christ that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now here I don't think David was taking on philosophical atheism for those who lived in the ancient Near East. They believed in deities, uh, sometimes one deity, sometimes many. But the point that David was driving at is that if you deny the true deity, the true creator, the God of Israel, you're a fool. And sadly, at the end of the day, when you breathe your last, you'll only be fooling yourself. Today is the day, if you have not trusted upon Jesus Christ to do so, based on the evidence, don't be the fool. Let's begin by proving that God exists. I want you to realize that atheists today in our culture, they reject the resurrection based on faulty assumptions. So let me show you how I think an atheist reasons in their mind Premise one, the atheist says the supernatural does not exist. They believe that everything you see outside the window in the cosmos is all there is. In fact, many of you remember Carl Sagan's, that famous astronomer, 
who said famously that the universe was all there ever was, all there ever is, and all there ever will be. That's the atheist. There can be nothing supernatural. Well, premise two, if that's true, they reason in their minds the resurrection is supernatural, therefore, the resurrection does not exist. And so what I'm going to prove to you today is I'm going to take issue, I'm pulling my pointer here, I'm going to take issue with premise one. I'm going to show you that the supernatural does exist. Why? Because God, who is supernatural, exists. So let's get started. I'm going to, first of all, show you that when it comes to the beginning of the universe and everything that you see, there's only three possibilities for its beginning. The first possibility is that the universe self-created itself. Now, what's the problem with that view? Well, the problem is it's absurd. It violates the law of non-contradiction. How could the universe not exist and at the same time exist to put itself into existence? The law of non-contradiction says if A, then not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. And so nothing can self-create itself. It's an absurdity. It's like believing in pixie dust or magic. Nothing can self-create itself. Now, let's go to the second option. The second option is that the universe is eternal. What's wrong with that view? Well, the problem with that is it violates the second law of thermodynamics. That's the law of science. We often call it the law of entropy, where all energy in a closed system is going from a higher organized state to a lesser organized state, meaning energy is in decay. The first law of thermodynamics says we have the same amount of energy and mass, but the second law says that this energy that we have is decaying, that one day I won't be speaking to you. One day the sun and the stars will burn out and the lights won't have their function anymore. Why? Because all energy is in decay. Well, how can you have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy? This is the quandary that the atheist is in. Do you see the quandary that they are in is they have to say either they're going to violate in premise one the law of non-contradiction and be absurd, or they're going to have to violate the second law of thermodynamics and be unscientific. So the atheist is either going to be unscientific, denying the law of thermodynamics, or absurd, denying the law of non-contradiction. And not so just says Eric Dauma. So says one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, Robert Jastrow. For those of you who don't know Robert Jastrow, let me cite a little bit of his biography for you. Robert Jastrow was an astrophysicist. It says that after leaving Columbia, Robert Jastrow became an assistant professor at Yale. And then he joined the Naval Research Laboratory, and in 1958, he joined the newly formed National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Some of you know that as NASA. And he was the head of its theoretical division in 1961. Now, this is back when NASA actually did things. This is back when they went to the moon. Right? They didn't just try to make friends with Muslim nations as they were tasked to do in the 2000s. So listen to what he went on to do. Then in 1961, he became the founding director of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. This is one of the astrophysicists that was responsible for us to going to the moon. Listen to what he says in his book called God and the Astronomers, 1978. He said this. He said, quote, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, 
The story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries, unquote. What was Jastrow pointing out? That there has to be a God. Because Big Bang cosmology showed that the universe had a beginning. And Robert Jastrow knew, therefore, that the universe couldn't be eternal, and he was bright enough to know that nothing can self-create itself. Nothing can. And by the way, it is not a smart question when little Billy says, well, then, who created God? It may be baffling to some people, but at the end of the day, it's not a good question because it's absurd to believe that anything cannot exist and at the same time put itself into existence. It's absurd. It's not a good question. You have to say, Billy, that's not good thinking. At the end of the day, if there was something that's not eternal, we'd have nothing now. There's a famous Latin phrase, ex nil, nil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. And so the third option and the only option that's valid is that there must be an eternal being outside the universe that created all things. And that's exactly what Robert Jastrow knew, head of NASA's Goddard Space Institute. Listen to another quote from him. This is from an interview in 1982. He said, Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces that they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact, unquote. Robert Jastrow, head of NASA's Goddard Space Institute, astrophysicist in 1982. Dear ones, God exists. It has to be something eternal. And isn't it interesting The Bible doesn't ask us to believe in absurdity like God created himself. What it teaches us is something that is consistent with the law of thermodynamics and the second law, or excuse me, the law of non-contradiction, and that is God is eternal. Genesis 1.1 doesn't say in the beginning God created himself. It says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We see in Psalm 90 that from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord has existed. Now, the question, after we've just proven the existence of God, has this God revealed himself? And the answer to that is yes. And when he revealed himself, he did not do so through a movie. He didn't do so through a tape series. He did so through the scriptures. So what I want to do is build the case as to why it is that we can trust our Bibles. Why can we trust them? Well, one reason is because they're completely historically reliable. I'm going to show you secular historians that were not believers that corroborate key pieces of data that we find within our gospel accounts in the Bible. The first one I'm going to cite is a man named Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. He actually had surrendered. He was a a Jewish general who had surrendered to Vespasian, a Roman general, during this war in the first century A.D., And he actually was considered by many Jews to be a traitor because he had surrendered. Well, he wrote in 75 AD, the Jewish war, 
and the antiquities of the Jews in 94 AD. Listen to what he says regarding Jesus in book 18 of the Antiquities, chapter 3. Josephus said, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principled men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. That is Josephus writing in 94 AD. He was not a believer. And to be fair, there are secular scholars today who will say, well, that quote from Josephus must have been added to and redacted by later Christians. But what everyone agrees, even the secular scholars today, is Josephus knew that Jesus existed, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why is that important? At the end of the day, there are only four possibilities for who Christ is. He's either a legend, he never existed, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Well, what we see from Josephus is he wasn't just a legend, he really existed. In fact, in book eight, excuse me, book 20 of the Antiquities, Josephus goes on to recount a man named Ananus. Ananus was a priest of the Jews who murdered James, the brother of Jesus. So again, Josephus is recording a secular historian that Jesus existed, that he had a brother named James from whom we get the book of James from in our Bibles, and that James was martyred because he believed his brother was the Messiah. You know, you can pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes if you claim to be the Messiah, but you can't with your own brother or sister. Both of my brother and sister are here today, and if I told them the Messiah, they would know that that's not true. James believed it why he saw his brother raised from the dead. Let's go on to another historian. This one, Tacitus, was a Roman senator and historian, and he wrote in his Annals, 116 AD, book 15, chapter 44. Listen to what Tacitus says. Tacitus says, Christus, that's Jesus Christ, he said, the founder of the name was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reigning of Tiberius, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but in Rome. Notice the key elements of the gospel that Tacitus validates. First of all, Christ exists. Second, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, just as our gospels state. That this happened during the reign of Tiberius, just as it says in Luke chapter 3. And that there was a mischievous superstition. What was that about? The resurrection. Of course, Tacitus didn't believe. But he is giving extra-biblical, secular, historical corroboration to the fact that these things existed. Jesus Christ, dear ones, is not a legend. Well, how about Pliny the Younger? And you might be asking yourself, well, what about Pliny the Elder? What happened to him? Well, let me tell you, Pliny the Elder was the uncle. Pliny the Elder, he died 
in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. He was a great encyclopedist, but his younger nephew, Pliny the Younger, was the governor in Bithynia in 79 AD. And in the year 111, he wrote to the emperor Trajan, asking, what do we do with these Christians, these rascals? They don't seem to be that bad of people, but they're not worshiping you. They're not worshiping the Roman emperor. In fact, we as Christians were regarded as atheists because we wouldn't worship the pantheon of the gods the Romans did or the emperor. We would only worship Jesus Christ. So listen to what Pliny the Younger said. Pliny the Younger, pleading for help with the emperor Trajan, said, these Christians, he said, they all declared that the sum total of their guilt was only the air that amounted to no more than this, that they had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in the honor of Christ as if to a God, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, unquote. Pliny the Younger, secular historian, validates that this Christ existed, that there were people who were called Christians that worshipped him as God, and that they abstained from immorality. Again, core essentials to the Gospels themselves. Now, we could do this for hours going through different secular historians, but let me come to the coup de grace, or as my brother would say, the coup de grace. By the way, he uses that as a joke. This is Flagin. Flagin was the chronicler of the Olympics. The Olympics that began in 776 BC, he wanted to be the chronicler of them and give a whole compendium as to how they came about and what they were all about. And he wrote in 137 AD a quote that ends up corroborating some really neat things that we see in the Bible. And I want you to know that as we talk about Flagin, Flagin relied upon another historian, if you're a note-taker, called Thallus. Thallus actually lived during the time of Christ, and he is the one who saw these things. So Flagin is recording from what Thallus gave him and I want you to see the quote here in just a second. But before I do, turn your Bibles to Matthew 27:45. This is what Flagin ends up corroborating. It's the darkness that comes upon the whole land for three hours while Christ is hanging on the cross. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew 27:45. Matthew 27. 45. Notice here, Jesus is on the cross, and it says, Now from the sixth hour, that would be noon in our reckoning, it says, Darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Notice that's three hours of darkness. That's very important to keep in your mind. Three, how much darkness? Three hours worth. Now, look at the quote from Flagin. Flagin, a Greek author from Korea, that's, by the way, in uh, parts of Turkey. It says it was writing a chronology soon after 137 AD, again relying on Thallus. He reported that in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which is 33 AD, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun. Now stop there for just a moment, right at the red. Let's do the math together. The, the Olympics began in 776 BC. And remember, they go every four years. So if you take 276 the 202nd Olympiad, and remember, they're going every four years. 
from 776 B.C. and realize that there's no year zero. You go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. The 202nd Olympiad ends up being 29 A.D. Well, notice Thallus told Flagian that this darkness happened in the fourth year. Well, that's AD 33. Why is that important? That's the very year Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross, and Matthew records that there's this three hours of darkness. Now, how dark was it? Flagian from Thallus tells us, notice it says, and that it became night in the sixth hour. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says. Boy, I wish I would have been taught this in school. That the sixth hour of the day, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. How dark was it? It was so dark that they could see the stars in the heavens. Now, this is attributed as being an eclipse of the sun. What is wrong with that? Well, there was a brilliant Christian named Julius Africanus who pointed out the longest a solar eclipse can last is seven and a half minutes at the equator. It's the longest it can last. How long can an eclipse last? Seven and a half minutes. How long did this one last? For three hours. For three hours. Why? Because it wasn't an eclipse. It was the supernatural intervention of God. Because its creator was bearing the wrath for those that would trust in him. Not only that, listen to what Flagin goes on to record. He says, there was a great earthquake in Bithynia. And many things were overturned in Nicaea. Bithynia, that's in Turkey. Now, this is the same earthquake that Matthew records that happens while Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, 54. In fact, even the Roman centurion gets it. He looks at the darkness. He sees the Lord on the cross, and he sees this earthquake, and he says, certainly, this was the Son of God. All of this is corroborated by a secular historian who wasn't even a believer writing in 137 A.D. Brothers and sisters, we have tremendous riches in the Bible because the Bible is indeed a historical text. Everything that it says occurs exactly as it said. And I want you to consider for just a moment, when we consider other religions, maybe you're coming today from another religion, maybe you're watching online, and truth be told, maybe you're into pantheism. Or Hinduism, do you know that the Hindus have religious texts called Vedas and they are not historically reliable? You can't validate them historically. What about the Mormons in the Book of Mormonism? It cannot be validated historically. What about the Quran? Do you know the Quran is unhistorical? The Quran claims that Moses taught the Samaritans. The Samaritans did not even exist until 700 years after the time of Moses. The Bible alone stands as the historical text. Josephus says it. Tacitus says it. Pliny the Younger says it. Flagin says it. On the darkest days of your life, know that you can trust the Scriptures because they are indeed historical. Now, let's look at Bible prophecy. Not only do we know that our Bibles are true because... Secular historians corroborate key pieces of data within them. But we also know from predictive prophecy in the scriptures that there must be a God in the heavens who knows the future and that indeed the Bible is his self-disclosure. In fact, 27% of our Bibles are prophetic. So that's over a quarter of your Bible is prophecy. 
400, according to Alfred Edersheim, 456 prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Over 300 of them were fulfilled in his first coming alone. Years ago in the 1950s, there was a man who was a professor at Pasadena College of their mathematics and astronomy department. His name was Peter Stoner. And he looked at just fulfilling eight of these prophecies. Remember, Jesus fulfills over 300 of them at his first coming alone. Well, this mathematician, Peter Stoner, looked at the possibility of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. Do you know what number he came up with? It's one times 10 to the 17th power. That's one in one quadrillion. That's the chance of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. And I know some of you are going to know this movie. Some of you are going to sing. So you're saying there's a chance. No, there's no chance. This is amazing. That's the point. Let's look at some of these prophecies. Micah 5.2. This is written 710 years in advance. By the way, Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. In fact, some think that he perhaps was a disciple. We're not sure. But Micah 5.2. Notice the prediction of where the Messiah would be born. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, what will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel? His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Where was this ruler? By the way, notice it's the ruler. They understood this, the Jews did, as the Messiah. Where was he to be born? Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem means house of bread. Is it not ironic that Jesus, who calls himself the bread of life, was to be born in the house of bread? And not only that, this is all written 710 years in advance, keep in mind, but we know also the tribe, excuse me, the clan or the family within the tribe, which was Ephrata. We know from Genesis 49.10, a prophecy that the Messiah had to come from Judah. But of all of the families within Judah, we see he's going to come from Ephrata. Ephrata was the family that Boaz, anybody in here read Ruth recently? Boaz marries Ruth the Moabite. He is from the family or the clan of Ephrata. Why is that important? Because they give birth to the grandpa of King David, from whom the Messiah came. Dear ones, how did Herod know where to look for the Messiah when he wanted to wipe him out? Well, he asked his scholars, he says, where in the scriptures does it say the Messiah is going to be born? They say, oh, that's easy. Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's why he sent his soldiers there. That's why Jesus has to be taken by Joseph and, of course, Mary as well, and to flee into Egypt. Again, an amazing prophecy. And I want you to think about, you may be able to control a lot of things in your life, but you can't control where you're going to be born. Let's look at a prophecy, a couple of them from Zechariah. Zechariah wrote 520 years prior to the birth of Christ, but here he's talking about his triumphal entry, Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. First of all, notice who is this addressed to? It's addressed to the people of Israel. Daughter of Zion is synonymous with daughter of Jerusalem. It's just a fancy way of saying inhabitant of Israel. They were to rejoice. Why? Because their king was coming to them. This was the Messiah. 
Now, who is this king? Well, notice, first of all, that he was just. The term in Hebrew there, tzaddik, means just that, that he is the just king. And why is that so important? Because the world has never had a just king. Even David, a man after God's own heart, he sinned so that he suffered greatly in his life for it. But not this king. This king who's coming is righteous. In fact, notice he's also endowed with salvation. What does Jesus' name mean? Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. So he is the just one who's endowed with salvation. And where does he come in on? Or what does he come in on? Well, he comes in humbly, and he comes in on a donkey. Way back in 1 Kings one thirty three, David put his son Solomon on a donkey and had him anointed as king over Israel at the pool of Siloam. That's the idea of the anointed ruler of David. Now here, it's prophesied that this just king endowed with salvation would one day come to Jerusalem again on a donkey. This is the greater son of David. This is, in fact, the Messiah. And on the very day that Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem, on the 10th day of Nisan, AD 33, on Lamb Selection Day, Jesus comes not on the war horse. He came humbly to his people on a donkey, offering them salvation if they would trust in him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they rejected it. And that's why Jesus said, if you had only known, even you, the time of your visitation, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The second time Jesus Christ returns, he's coming, as it says in Revelation 19, on the war horse. There's going to be a new sheriff in town, and he's going to judge his enemies, and he's going to bring us a glorious kingdom. But the first time he came to pay for sin, he comes humbly, riding on a donkey. Again, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy 553 years in advance. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, Eric. Here Jesus certainly saw this donkey. He wants to line up of prophecies that we see in Genesis 49, that we see in Zechariah 9.9. And so he is deliberately putting himself on this donkey. Well, that may well be true. Well, let's look at another prophecy from Zechariah. Here in Zechariah chapter 11, God excoriates Israel for accepting the wicked shepherd, And in fact, he actually has Zechariah get rid of three of these wicked shepherds. But then God wants Zechariah to be the shepherd of the people. Well, isn't it interesting? They reject him. And what you'll find out is it's the same way Christ ends up being rejected. Notice Zechariah said, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, he's saying this to the Israelites, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. What's the point there? Yahweh wanted to be the true shepherd of Israel. And he was going to do so through Zechariah. And yet they rejected Yahweh as their true shepherd. They weighed out 30 pieces of silver. What is 30 pieces of silver? It's the cost of a gourd slave, according to Exodus 21. They treated Yahweh, the true shepherd of Israel, and his spokesman, Zechariah, like nothing more than a slave. Fast forward to the book of Matthew at Matthew twenty six fifteen. Judas betrays Jesus for how much? For 30 pieces of silver. The religious leaders pay Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray the ultimate shepherd of Israel. Again, all of this typology was given to us 
553 years in advance, Jesus is betrayed and he's paid with the very pieces that you'd pay for a slave. And again, you may be able to control what donkey you come riding in on, but you can't control how your own enemies forsake you. And Jesus, he fulfilled it all. Now, let's go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 7:14, the great virgin birth prophecy written 715 years prior to the birth of Christ. Notice the prophet Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This is a sign that was given to the whole house of David. In fact, the you there is plural. And what is the sign? Well, the sign is that God is faithful even when they are not. And what's the ultimate sign of that? The sending of a man who's going to be born of a virgin. Do you know in the history of mankind, there has never been one human being not one that was ever born of a virgin except the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a sign for all time for all those who trust in him, Emmanuel. God is with us. Written 715 years in advance. In fact, there's so many of these prophecies, but we'll look at a few from Isaiah 53. Again, this is 710 years prior to the birth of the Messiah, let alone his suffering. And here in Isaiah 53, 5, it talks about the suffering servant and what would happen to him. It says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Notice it talks about the piercing of the Messiah, the suffering servant. That's exactly how Jesus Christ is affixed to the cross, 700 and well, you've got to add 33 to when he was born. 743 years after this is written, right in there. It's amazing. Notice not only that he would be pierced, but that he would be scourged. They scourged him prior to him being affixed to the cross. And what was it for? Notice the substitution. It was for our iniquities. It was for our sins. The substitute, Jesus the just on behalf of us, the unjust, so that his chastening for our well-being, it fell upon him. There's a substitute. So the substitutionary atonement was foretold 743 years in advance. The fact that the Messiah would be scourged, the fact that he would be pierced, but it goes on. Notice here in Isaiah 53, 9 through 10, it says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is amazing. First of all, let me address some unbelieving Jewish people will say, in fact, I've got to witness to one, she actually came to faith in Christ. Bob and I had the opportunity to use Isaiah 53. But what the unbelieving Jews will often say is they will say that the reference here in Isaiah 53 to the suffering servant is a reference to Israel. How do we know that Israel is not in mind here, that it has to be the Messiah? Notice the phrase, it says, well, first of all, he's done no violence. I think Israel has done some violence in their day. But there was also, there was no deceit in his mouth. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, he is a man of unclean lips, and he dwells amongst a people who have deceitful lips. Every Israelite, and by the way, every Gentile, me as well, at the end of the day has unclean lips. 
But the one that's just being referred to here is the one who has no deceit. This is the one who is the perfect one. Therefore, it's the Messiah. Notice when he was buried, he's going to be buried with the rich man. Lo and behold, when Jesus is buried in the tomb, it's with a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man. And so you might say, hey, Jesus controls Zechariah 9.9. He could do that. He could ride in on a donkey. But can he control the way he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Can he control where he's buried in the wealthy man's tomb? And by the way, we have a hint of his resurrection. The Lord would prolong his days. How else is he going to see his seed, his offspring? How else is he going to see them if his days aren't prolonged? Here's a hint of his resurrection all 743 years in advance. And by the way, we're just skimming the details. There's many more in Isaiah 53. For the sake of time, let's keep going. Psalm 69. Psalm 69, written by David a thousand years prior to the birth of Christ. Here in Psalm 69, 21, David recalls what his enemies did to him. What did they offer him? They said, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Notice the gall. The gall would have been a byproduct of the liver. Very bitter, very bad tasting. And what did they give him to drink? They gave him vinegar. Well, thanks a lot. That's the idea. What did his enemies give him? They gave him gall, some bile to eat, and vinegar to drink. In other words, they didn't treat him so well. The same things are offered a thousand years later to the greater David as he's on the way to the cross. They offer him a form of gall and vinegar, but this time it is to deaden the pain. But Jesus rejects it. It fulfills Psalm 69, 21, but he rejects taking them. Why? He rejects them because he came to take it all. He came to take upon himself the full measurement of God's wrath. He didn't take any sedative. He didn't take Tylenol. He didn't take any Advil. He took it all. But he was offered the same thing as the suffering servant that David was ridiculed with a thousand years earlier. Psalm 1610, again written by King David, here's a reference to the resurrection. Written a thousand years prior to the birth of Christ, David here recounts of his great expectation that one day he would overcome the grave but that ultimately the Messiah would be raised. Notice he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. When the Apostle Peter was preaching at Pentecost, do you know how he reasons from this text? He reasons that because David was in the tomb undergoing decay in his body, that this passage had to be written about the Messiah. And he claims that David knew that the Messiah would not undergo decay. And therefore, he had to be raised on what day? The third day. You see, the Jews believed, and by the way, I don't think it's true, but the Jews believed this at the time, that a spirit would hover around a body for up to three days. And so he would depart on the fourth day, and that's when official decay began. In fact, Bob was mentioning today, or this past Friday, in the message he gave, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, remember, Martha doesn't want Jesus to have the stone rolled away. And she literally says, because Lazarus, her brother, who was in the tomb, is a four-dayer. That's literally how you should render the Greek. He's a four-dayer. Well, the idea, I think, is that official decay in their minds had begun. And so God condescends to their understanding. And what necessitates him being raised 
on the third day is he went under to go decay, which began on the fourth day. Jesus would be raised from the dead. Dear ones, I've just given you eight prophecies, eight of the over 300 that Jesus fulfills in his first coming alone. Again, there's hundreds that he will fulfill at his second coming. But mathematician Peter Stoner said the odds of one person fulfilling just the eight that we looked at is one in one quadrillion. I don't know how to relate that to other odds, but this is the way I would think of it as a Minnesotan. You would have the same odds of sitting on a leprechaun, getting struck by lightning, watching the Vikings win a Super Bowl. (laughs) Right? And for those Minnesota fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. That's about the same odds. No, dear ones, Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Okay, now, let's come to the resurrection predictions that Christ himself made. We want to focus on the crescendo of the resurrection. You know, Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Notice what Jesus says here in Matthew twelve forty. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you remember he's picking on Jonah here as this typology? Jonah was a prophet that God had sent to Nineveh to preach repentance so that they would turn and be saved. Now, why didn't Jonah want to go there? Well, the people of Nineveh, remember, that's the capital of Assyria. Assyria had slaughtered thousands of Israelites. It would be like shortly after World War II telling a prophet from Poland, hey, why don't you go preach some repentance to the Nazis? That's what it's like. So he doesn't want any part of it. And yet the Lord swallows him up in this great sea creature And for all intents and purposes, this is historical, he's dead for three days. And yet he lived. And so the Ninevites are seeing him and they say, you know what, we should probably listen to him because for all intents and purposes, he was dead for three days and yet he lives. This surely is a prophet of God. Why should we listen to Jesus, the prophet par excellence, the prophet that Moses had foretold that would come from the Israelites in Deuteronomy 18:15 how do we know that Jesus is the prophet the prophet in fact God himself because he was dead for 3 days and yet he lives and so Jesus will say to an unbelieving world a wicked and adulterous generation will seek for a sign but none will be given to it except what the sign of Jonah the only sign that the world is ever going to be given is the sign of the resurrection and how Is the world going to know about the resurrection? Can they look at it directly? No, they're going to have to hear it from you because it's in the Scriptures. They're going to have to believe the Bible. But Jesus here clearly is predicting his own resurrection. In fact, we know that later his enemies, that is the religious leaders of Israel, they ask Pilate, please, will you post a guard in front of this tomb? Why? Well, notice what they say, Matthew 27, 63. The leaders of Israel say, Sir, we remember that when he, that's Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver, remember, they they don't believe in him, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Why is that so important, that quote? Because the enemies of Jesus knew that he had predicted his own death, burial, and his resurrection on the third day. Even the enemies of Christ knew that. Jesus Christ is the only man in history that was virgin-born, 
and that predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and on the third day, he pulled it off. He's the only one in history. Now, this gets even better. Think about this. There were many eyewitnesses to the resurrection. These things didn't just happen in a corner. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Let's stop there for just a moment. Notice in blue, Paul is saying that the Old Testament Scriptures had predicted a third-day resurrection. The last two Easter's, I gave a message on this. That's why I didn't want to wear out that message. I want to use it again. But what prophecies in the Old Testament demanded that the Messiah would be raised on the third day? The first is a typology. It's found in Genesis 22. Do you remember Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac? How long did Abraham travel in Genesis 22 to Mount Moriah where he, by the word of the Lord, was to put his son to death? How long did he travel? Three days. What happens when he gets to Mount Moriah? The Lord doesn't let him kill his son. He provides a substitute on the very location where 1,800 years later, God would provide the substitute, Jesus Christ. And so Abraham receives his son back after three days thinking he's dead. That's the three-day typology. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea the prophet, through the word of the Lord, promises the people of Israel that if they will be faithful, he will raise them up on the third day. What's the problem? The Israelites are like us. They're not faithful. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile who's ultimately faithful. But Jesus was. Jesus was the faithful son Israel never was. Therefore, he had to be the one who was raised on the third day. Jesus just used Jonah. Jonah, for all intents and purposes, was dead in the belly of the great sea creature for three days, yet he lived. More typology. Psalm 1610, we already alluded to that. The Messiah would not undergo decay in the tomb. He had to be raised on what day? He can't be a four-dayer. He had to be raised on the third day. Those are the passages. Then notice it goes on to say that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Do you realize that when Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, when he was in that state, he was not just seen by the 12 apostles, he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. And in the ancient Near East, remember, this is long before wokeness came, they didn't count women and children. It would have been only the men. So think about it. If you had all these men there and you add their children and their wives, you're probably over 1,000 people. Why is that important? Because Jesus Christ's resurrection, again, isn't some secret religion that happened in a corner and only just a few people saw it. It was a public event. Jesus Christ was crucified publicly, not in the Holy of Holies for one man to see the high priest once a year. It was publicly. He was raised from the dead publicly, an attestation by God to all people that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Lord and the Messiah. That's who he is. Dear brothers and sisters, we have tremendous evidence. You know that there are unbelievers who will say, well, yes, the apostles, they wanted Jesus to be raised from the dead so bad that they started to hallucinate. The problem with that hallucination theory is that over 500 people at one time don't have the same hallucination. Again, unless you were at Woodstock. 
<laughs> than you may have. But otherwise, if it's not drug-induced, you're not going to have the same hallucination. No, they saw what they saw. Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. Let's leave on this. What should we do? We've seen tremendous evidence that God must exist, that the Bible is his word, and that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. What's the significance of this resurrection? Let me give you four things to consider. Number one, because Christ overcame the grave, he's God. He has mastery over life and death. No one takes his life. He has the authority to lay it down, and he has the authority to take it up again. Why? Because he's God. Second, because Jesus overcame the grave, so will you, if you trust in him. And I'll give you the gospel in just a moment. So will you. The grave isn't the end. Number three, he's the only savior. Because he overcame the grave, all other contenders, all other religions fall by the wayside. Jesus alone is savior. Number four, because he overcame the grave, he is the judge of all. And that's exactly what the apostle Paul told the pagans in Athens in Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. Listen to what he said. He said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What should we do? Well, all of us should repent. Why? Because God has given us proof by raising Christ from the dead. What does it mean to repent? The term repent here, metonoeo, is a term that literally has to do with a change of mind, but also a change of direction in one's life. Another term that's synonymous in the Greek New Testament is epistrepho, which has to do with turning. And the idea in repentance is that you're turning from something to something. You're turning from idolatry, turning to God on his terms. You're turning from worshiping and serving yourself to following God. You're turning from sin, self, and the world to God. You're turning from unbelief and you're turning to faith. That's the idea of repentance. And so it goes hand in hand with saving faith. That's what he's calling us to. Every single person should turn from unbelief and turn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with the gospel. I've given you major portions of it. But I want to give the whole thing here. And I always tell people when I witness to them on the street or when I used to be at this workout club that if you want to understand the good news of the gospel, you really first have to understand the bad news. The Bible that we have just proven to be God's authoritative self-disclosure to the world is a Bible that reveals bad news. The bad news is that every single one of us, according to Romans 3.23, has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every one of us has rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. We are cosmic rebels. That's bad news. That's very bad news. Why? Because in Romans 6.23, it talks about the wages of our rebellion. It's death. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. One thing I've often posed to atheists, if they believe everything happens by chance, why isn't that there one person who happens to live forever by chance? Because death is a design. It's a design by the creator as the wages of sin. And what death is in the Bible, it's not annihilation. It's a separation. 
When you physically die, your body will go into the ground and your soul will go of one of two places. If you're a believer, you go to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But if you're an unbeliever, and this is the vast cases of most people, they will go to a place called Hades, a place of temporal torment. That's where they go, awaiting the final sentence in the lake of fire. That's called the first death, the first separation. But there's another final death that we read about that Jesus warns of in Matthew 10, 28, and that is the lake of fire. That separation from God forevermore in a place of eternal torment. Jesus warned of it. The Jesus who was bodily raised from the dead in Matthew 10, 28, he warns of hell. I can't think of any worse news. I can't think of worse news delivered then you and I are rebels committing cosmic treason against the Holy One of Israel and we deserve to be sentenced to hell forever? That's very bad news. But it's true. But that's why the good news shines. Do you know oftentimes when a jeweler wants to show you a brilliant diamond, they'll show you in the backdrop of black velvet. It's the contrast. In the same way, the good news of the gospel shines brilliantly in light of the bad news. The good news is that God sent forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time in history, he humbled himself and he became a man through the virgin birth. Jesus was truly God, truly man in one person. And he lived the perfect life that none of us could. All of us are sinners, but not Jesus. Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to your account. But not only did Jesus live the perfect life so that we could receive that righteousness, but he did so so that he could pay off our debt on the cross. Why? Because he didn't have to pay for any debt of his own. So he went to the cross to die a substitutionary atonement. Jesus the just on behalf of us, the unjust, in order to bring us to God. That's 1 Peter 3.18. Or, as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, substitution, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus paid our sin debt in full and appeased the very wrath of God. The proof of this is seen in the fact that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, according to his promise. And he ascended bodily to the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1 from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What must we do? Jesus, like the apostle Paul, commands every single person to repent and believe the gospel. Turn from unbelief, turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you will trust in him, For your salvation, your righteousness, the forgiveness of sins, the Bible declares to you that you have everlasting life and that just as he overcame the grave, one day you will as well. You know, there was a famous theologian who once said, when it comes to us living in the time we do, none of us can look directly at the resurrection. He said the resurrection is much like the sun. You can't look directly at it but only in light of it can you see all other things. Today, perhaps there are some who have never believed in the resurrection. Today is your day. Today is your day to see all things clearly, flee from the coming wrath, and enter into eternal life 
through the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the truth found in your scriptures. We thank you for the profundity of them and the predictive prophecies written hundreds of years in advance so that we can know, even in the darkest days of our lives, that you alone are the Savior, that there's no salvation other than through Jesus Christ. There's no other name given to man under heaven by which we must be saved. We thank you for this, Lord. We do pray if there's anyone who hears this who's an unbeliever that you'd regenerate them, Lord, enable them to believe. We know that no one can believe except for your power and strength. We also pray, Heavenly Father, in the weeks and months ahead that you'd give us who are believers boldness to proclaim this great gospel to those in our family and friends and coworkers who may not know you. We pray that you'd give us boldness and open their hearts before us. I pray now for my brothers and sisters who love you. I pray that they'd have a wonderful celebration together and that you'd protect them this week. Enable us to persevere. Enable us to be those who are not just hearers of the word, but doers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.